I invite you to turn with me, please, this morning to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. As you're turning there, I want for you to imagine, if you would, please, a young couple getting married. Young couple, young man, young woman, just about to get married or just married, whatever. They say that they love one another. The wife says, oh, he's everything to me. He just means everything, all the world. I want to spend all day with him. I want to spend all of my life with him. And she's just enamored. Into, she, she, uh, she's just so caught. Oh, he's the one that I love. And then the guy, yeah, she's the only one for me. I truly do love her. I need her. I want to spend every minute of my life with her. I just love her, and I want to be with her forever. Then they get married. Following the marriage, they never see each other. They don't spend any time together, except for maybe one hour a year, and sometimes two. Sometimes one, sometimes two, but just maybe one hour a year. Now, does that sound possible to you? Does that sound plausible to you? Does that sound like it goes together, that they say that they love one another and that they only spend like an hour a year together? That is absurd. And yet it is what millions who call themselves Christians do All the time. They say, oh, I love Jesus. I'm saved by Jesus. I appreciate all that he has done. I believe in Jesus. I'm giving my life to him. And they go for years and never go to church. Maybe on Easter Sunday. One hour a year. And maybe at Christmas time, if they're serving dinner at the church, one hour a year. You see what I'm saying? It is impossible to conceive that a man or a woman who love one another would separate themselves for such a long period of time. And yet in Christianity, it's the way things are for many people who claim to be saved but they never go to church. They never go to worship in that place where Jesus says he is in the midst of the church. They just don't do it. Some may occasionally do him a favor, but some, many do not. I ask you again, does that seem to you to be evidence of a truly changed heart. Does that seem to you to be evidence of one who has genuinely been forgiven, who understands what Christ has done for them when he gave his life on the cross and that he has shed his blood to forgive them, to set them free from the bondage of sin, and then they never worship him? 
Does that sound right to you? It doesn't sound right to me. It does not seem to be evidence of forgiveness. That's where we are in our study on the fundamentals of forgiveness. We're looking at our last heading, the evidence of forgiveness. We've touched on three areas so far. When one is saved, when one is forgiven, there will be the evidence seen in his love for Jesus. There will be, secondly, evidence in his thanks to God and to Jesus. Appreciation. And last week we began to open up the fact that they will be, one who has been forgiven, will be a worshiper of Jesus. One who praises and worships Jesus. Now I ask you to turn to Psalm 84 And I simply want to remind those of you who were here last Lord's Day and those of you who perhaps weren't for you to see what we looked at as we looked at verses 1 and 2 predominantly where the psalmist shows his heart in that he would be one who would want to worship God. That was our first heading, that it was what the Old Testament saint would do. It was a way of life. For the Old Testament saint. And we see here the psalmist saying, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. What's his dwelling place? We saw that we mentioned that that's translated sometimes tabernacle. The tabernacle would be the place where God would dwell, particularly in the Holy of Holies. How lovely! Are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts? And here's what he says. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. My soul longs to be in the courts of the Lord. In the temple of the Lord, shall we just say, church. Does your soul long to be at church? That's an evidence that you're forgiven. Verse 10 we read, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. So many today would rather stand outside the church not even in the threshold, than to be in a church that actually uses the Bible and sings praises to God. But the heart of a forgiven man, the heart of a forgiven woman, will long to be where God is worshipped, will long to give His praise and worship to God with His people. That's the point we made last Lord's Day. Today, let's take this into the New Testament. I invite you to now turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. Luke 18. As today we see that it is not only what the Old Testament saint would do, it is what the redeemed Christian will do. And there are many, many passages that we could turn to, so many. I I can't possibly get to them 
But I did want to see this one because it shows some of what we have already seen in a response to Jesus and a little bit more to uh, add in terms of what we're looking at now regarding worshiping. So here in Luke chapter 18, I invite you to look down to verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. That was his profession. That was his, uh, what he did. He begged. He was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. So here's the picture. He's sitting by the side of the road begging because he was blind and that's all he could do. They didn't have the various vocational training for blind people that we might have today. But So one of the things that you often find that blind people would do in the Bible is that they would beg. They needed to get money to buy food or bread or pay the rent. And, and the only way that they could really do anything was to go to the same place they always go because it would be familiar and beg and look for the generosity of other people to help them. And so he was there begging. And then, of course, this crowd comes by. It's evident that a crowd came by, the stirring, the noise. And the text even tells us in verse 39 that they're hearing a crowd. So he, could, he couldn't see, but he could hear all the commotion. He could hear what was going on and that there was obviously a great crowd that was around. And he goes, hey, what's going on? Maybe he had a friend. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, he did. There was two blind men. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But they asked, what on earth is going on? He began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus was coming by. And so what does he do? Verse 38, he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Now, those who had led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. They're telling him, be quiet, be quiet. Keep quiet. The master's coming by. And what does he do? Oh, okay. No. He cries out even more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Above the noise of the crowd. Why did he cry? Why did he cry out so loud? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Let's pick them apart. First of all, he knew he was blind. He knew that he was blind. And that there was no hope for him to regain his sight. There wasn't any question. He was blind. Now, I want you to look in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Just quickly. And we're going to look at the parallel text here because I want you to know that we know who this blind guy was. We don't only know who he was, we know who his father was. Mark chapter 10 and verse 46. Then they came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho, with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus 
the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. You see that? We even know who he was. He was Bartimaeus. Now, I want to point something else out to you, simply because I, I want you to understand these things, and I don't want you to be ignorant of them, that this is a disputed verse. I wonder how many of you realize that some people look at this particular passage and say, aha, the Bible has mistakes. The Bible is not trustworthy. For one thing, in Matthew's gospel, he depicts two men sitting by the road in this occasion. That's easy to uh, describe or easy to understand. It is if you are reasonable in your understanding and will accept the truth. There could have certainly been two men, but Mark and Luke saw Bartimaeus. But when there's two, there's definitely one. And so, I mean, so it's not a mistake. It's not an error. It's just that Luke and Mark focused on Bartimaeus. He probably yelled the loudest. But there's another thing that higher criticism and critics of the Bible point to in this passage. You'll notice here in Mark, it says that he was leaving Jericho. Now go back to Luke. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho. Aha! The Bible has errors. The Bible has mistakes. Well, some people suggest that there uh, was Jesus came in and then he was coming out. And that's possible. But here's the real truth of the matter. There were two Jerichos. The old Jericho and the new Jericho. They were real close, right next to each other. So it's very likely he was leaving one and approaching the other. Same place. Right there, no mistake, no error. Just wanted you to know. In case you ever said that, oh, the Bible has errors. The Bible does not have errors. The Bible does not have mistakes. The Bible does not have contradictions. Do you know why that's so important? Because if it had errors, mistakes, or contradictions, it would not be trustworthy. And if it's not trustworthy, our faith is in vain. Our whole Christian system is wrong and based on lies. And that can't be. So there are passages like that that people will point to and say, you Christians, you're so ignorant, you don't even see the mistakes. No, the fact of the matter is, we know what it says, and we know why. That's my job, to let us know what the Bible says, why, so that we can have faith and confidence that it is true. No mistakes, no errors. Now, to the passage, once again. He cries out louder again because he knows he's blind and he, does have, he has no remedy for it. There's no cure for it. There's nothing he can do. He cries out to Jesus for the only thing that can possibly cure him. Mercy! Remember, he was a beggar and he wasn't crying out for alms. He wasn't crying out for help. 
for food. He was crying out to Jesus for mercy. He needed a miracle from the miracle worker from Galilee. Obviously, when they said Jesus is coming by, he knew just who that was. The miracle worker from Galilee has come right here. Jericho, right, right to where I am. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Jesus came right to where he was. And he had heard about this man and all the miracles that he had done. And so what does he do? He does whatever it takes to be heard by Jesus. He knew his state and he knew there was nothing that he could do to help his state, to help his blindness. And so he cried out to Jesus for mercy. And no one could silence him. Would they silence you? If you were in his place, would they tell, if they told you to be quiet, would you go, oh, okay. Or would you, like this Bartimaeus, cry out even louder, David, son of David, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that's what he did. He cried out even louder. And notice that he uses the term son of David. He says in the text twice, he called out verse 38, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he cried out even louder in verse 39, son of David, have mercy on me. What did that mean? What was he saying when he said, son of David, have mercy on me? Remember, the promised Messiah was to be the son of David. And so what he was doing was calling Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. Don't you know that really irked the Pharisees? Doesn't have a whole lot about the Pharisees here, but you know they're always around. And they're going, and that's maybe why they were trying to tell him to be quiet. Because he was calling Jesus the son of God, the Messiah. But what does that tell you about Bartimaeus? Tells you that he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. That's important for what happens. He's calling him son of David. That must have sounded really good to Jesus. That must have sounded wonderful to Jesus. And thus it was in verse 40 that Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. Jesus stops. He hears his cries above the crowd. He hears Bartimaeus crying out, Jesus, son of David. Jesus knew there was a believer. And he asked him to be brought to him. And look what Jesus says in verse 41, or what Jesus asks. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I want you to stop right there for a minute. Do you hear this? Here's the Son of God saying, what do you want me to do for you? What if that happened to you? The Son of God, the divine Son of God says, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What would you answer? 
Would you be like so many today with, and believe me, this is the health and wealth gospel who are asking Jesus, oh, I want a private jet. I want a Rolls Royce. I want a big mansion down on the ocean. I want all this gold. I want my health restored. I want this this temporal stuff. And it's reminded me as I was looking at this text of Isaiah chapter 55. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and what does not satisfy? Because believe it or not, a hundred years from now we'll all be dead. What will the gold do you? Who will have the jet or the car or the house? You want something eternal, something more than material, something more than gold. So what would you ask for? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? You know what? He does. He does ask today, what do you want me to do for you? We'll get back to that. But then Bartimaeus, of course, good old Bartimaeus, says to him, Lord, I want my sight. Bartimaeus asks him for his sight. But I want you to know that this is more than a picture of Jesus merely giving physical sight to a man. It is a picture of salvation. As indeed, even Newton said, I once was blind, but now I see in his great hymn, Amazing Grace. And I could say that about every one of you. Spiritually, we were all blind until God gives sight to see Christ as lovely and beautiful and who he is. To see the scriptures as being God's word and God's truth. To see the things of the world as God sees them. And the wickedness as wickedness and sin as sin. And God only as holy and beautiful and lovely. God gives you spiritual eyes to see. And this is, I say, a picture of salvation even as we look a little closer to it, as he asks him to give him his sight, what does Jesus do? Verse 42, he opens his eyes. He says, receive your sight. That's it. Doesn't touch him. Doesn't lay hands on him. In some instances, you know, he made the paste with the saliva and put it on the eyes. Nothing. Just says to him, Receive your sight. He simply speaks and his sight is restored. And look what else Jesus says. Look at verse 42 at the end. He says, your faith has made you well. You see that phrase, made you well. Well, that is in the Greek from the Greek word sozo, which some of you will recognize as to save. That's why many translations actually translate this, your faith has saved you. Saved you. Remember, God gives faith. God gave Bartimaeus the faith to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus says, your faith 
has saved you. It's a picture of salvation. So not only did he receive his temporal sight, his uh, uh, eyesight, but he also received spiritual sight to know God, to see, as we say, the light. A lot of people make fun of that phrase or that saying, I see the light. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you've been saved, you do see the light. And prior to being saved, you really don't. But Christ is the light of the world. And only those who have been saved by his grace see him as the light of the world. Because he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, right? This is what happens here with our friend Bartimaeus. Now, before we look at his response, I want to take a moment for us to consider that the Son of God was passing by that very moment there in front of Bartimaeus, and it was not an accident. It was not by chance that Jesus was going by right where Bartimaeus was, right there at that exact time when Bartimaeus was sitting there. Jesus goes by. That was not an accident. It was not by chance. It is what we call sovereign providence. The sovereign providence of God. Jesus knew Bartimaeus would be there as sovereign and omniscient God. He knew he would be there. And he knew that Bartimaeus was one of his children. And he heard his cry above the crowd because he knew he was there and he knew exactly what was going to happen. It was not an accident. It was not a a chance encounter. Wow, what luck. Luck is a pagan God. But the kind providence of God is what took place here. As one has said, commenting on this passage, in fact, Providence always works with grace for the salvation of God's chosen. God had chosen Bartimaeus from before the foundation of the world and Jesus came right by that place where he was to show you and to show you and to show you and to show me the way God works. He hears the cry of his children for mercy and in kindness and mercy, saves them by His grace. It was not an accident. It was not chance. Jesus came by that day as eternal God to save one of His sheep. Now, I say this to you. The Son of God is here today. Not by accident, Not by chance. The Son of God promises to meet with His people, to be in the midst of His church in this special thing that we call worship. And so I say to you all, He is here today. And I encourage you that you can call on Him that you can call to Him, and He will hear. And don't call for temporal things, for gold or for goods. Call out to Him for mercy. Some of you need the mercy of God in your hearts. 
You need to have your heart changed by God. You kids, look at me now. I told you before, whenever I start talking like this, I always see you guys going like this. You need to call on Jesus for mercy. Because the alternative is that when you wake up in hell, as the rich man did in Luke 16, you will say as he said, Jesus, have mercy on me. And what did Abraham say? Too late. Too late. There's no mercy now. You're in hell for all eternity. And there's no mercy. Jesus is here. You want to picture him as going by like he did with Bartimaeus? Jesus is here. Call out to him in mercy. But now let's look at Bartimaeus' response. Verse 43. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And all the people saw it. They gave praise to God. And here's Bartimaeus glorifying God. Can't you see this? Can't you see this picture? What a wonderful picture of what happened and what happens to sinners when they're saved. He regained his sight immediately, the text says. Jesus just spoke. Look, Jesus just spoke in verse 42. Receive your sight and immediately he regained his sight. What would that have been like? One, one second you're blind, you blink and now you see. Can you imagine that? Now, it is that he regained his sight. It wasn't like he was born blind. The text says that he regained his sight. So he knew what it was like to see. But now he, he has his sight back. He can see his friends. He can see his family. But more than anything, he could see Jesus. What's the first one he saw when he opened his eyes? Jesus. And so he praises God. Isn't that what we're talking about here? When one has been forgiven, the evidence will be that he praises God, glorifies God. What is that but what we do in worship? That's why we meet, to give praise and glory and honor to the God who saved us, who opened our eyes. That's why we're here. That's what we try to do, what we seek to do. Give praise to the one who forgave us of our sins because we understand what it is like. Now, as far as I know, none of you were, have uh, been healed of blindness. So we don't have that physical experience of being blind and then opening our eyes and being able to see. But we have that spiritual experience. I remember when my eyes were first opened from reading the scriptures, I realized how I had been lied to by my former religion and even by my family. But I knew there was a difference from the day God saved me. I saw things differently. And so Bartimaeus' eyes were immediately opened and he could see and he saw Jesus. And what does he do? He began following him. Following him. And what is that? That is being where 
Jesus is. I want to be where Jesus is. He's the one who opened my eyes. He's the one who saved me. I want to be where Jesus is. Where does Jesus meet with his people? Right here. I want to be where Jesus is. I want to follow Jesus. So he left everything. Nothing else mattered to him but to be with Jesus. And he began to follow him. Same thing was said about the disciples, remember? James and John in their boat, sons of Zebedee, they left their nets, they left their boat, they left their father and followed Jesus because they had to be where Jesus was. Is that your heart? I mean, this is Christianity. This is the evidence of salvation. The evidence of salvation is you want to be where Jesus is. You want to be where Jesus' people are. You want to meet with Jesus in worship. Praise and worship, and I want to be there. Wild horses couldn't keep me away. I want to be where Jesus is. That's what happened to Bartimaeus. I tell you this in the fact of what I know the redeemed people will praise Jesus. Redeemed people will praise God. It will just flow from them. It will just well up from within them and from their forgiven hearts and they will explode with praise and worship to God. Do you know why Grace Baptist Church does not have what the world would consider some kind of a high-powered worship team. We were talking about this the other night, that uh, many churches have worship teams that plan how the worship is going to go and how the lighting will be and the cue the smoke and the smoke comes up and the lights flash and all of this stuff starts happening. And then the choir, the light shines on the choir and all of the... Ah, ah, you know why we don't do that? Because we don't need to do that. That's what you need to do with a bunch of dead people. To get them awake. To elicit some response from them. For saved people, it'll flow. You will sing praises to God and to Jesus from your heart. You don't need me up here pumping you up. You might need me setting the key, but you don't need me pumping you up and getting you excited to praise God. A true Christian will have that excitement in them already because they've been forgiven and they want to praise the one who has forgiven them. As soon as Bartimaeus' eyes were opened, he praised God. And I believe with all of my heart that when we get a few more, we'll have the best worship in town. That you will hear hymns being sung so loud and so strong because of the hearts of the people singing them, not because of the man leading the singing. Because of the hearts. So when I hear you singing and you're mumbling and you're kind of... You're going to get me upset. In fact, you should wonder, 
If you don't come to church wanting to sing praises to Jesus, you should wonder, is my heart right? But secondly, not only that, I really believe that when one has been redeemed, you will want to worship Jesus. You will want to come to church. You don't need a preacher to call you on Saturday night to get you to church. When I was pastoring in South Florida, there was a large church in And how the pastor got this church to grow is that every Saturday night he would call people. He said he was on the phone for hours on Saturday night calling people to get them to come to church. He should have been spending more of those hours studying this because he had no theology. But what he did have was a knack for salesmanship. And he called people and he could get them to come to church. That's how they got the church to grow. By calling people. I believe that when you are saved by the grace of God, I won't have to call you to remind you, hey, by the way, it's Saturday night. You know we got church tomorrow? Wondering if you could possibly be there. These were his members, too, for a lot of them. I mean, they were members. I believe that when you're saved by the grace of God and you understand what it means to be forgiven by God, you'll want to be here. you want to be with God's people. As I said, wild horses won't keep you away. You'll want to be where God is worshipped by his people. That will be your heart. And that, I say to you, is what? The evidence that one is forgiven. Redeemed people will want to worship the one who has redeemed them. It's that simple. It's that simple. Basic. Now I want to look at a couple of verses quickly and see this taught. If you would please look at Philippians chapter 2. And someone even mentioned this a little earlier. Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2 there's a very um, well-known passage of scripture. We read beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death on a cross. Now, have this attitude in you. And that is to what? Be humble. We are to be those who are humble. But, as we go on in this passage, may I say that we would also have this attitude for this reason also, God highly exalted him. Do you believe that Jesus is highly exalted? I hope you do. Have that attitude. I believe that God is highly exalted His Son, Jesus. He has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will be bowing of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What are we doing here? 
I hope and pray that when we come to church at Grace Baptist Church, we are bowing before the highly exalted God, humbling ourselves before Him because He is God and we are but dust. And so we bow before Him, but we offer up praise to Him. Praise that He is the exalted, high King of kings and Lord of lords. With our tongues we confess that He is Christ, that He is God, that He is highly exalted. That's what we do in worship. Bowing before Him, and even as we saw from Psalm 84, rejoicing with trembling in the presence of Christ, who is highly exalted by God. And we acknowledge Him to be above everything on heaven and earth. And this is to the glory of God the Father. That's what worshipers do. They seek to do everything to the glory of God the Father. Worship Him in spirit from hearts that are alive. Worship Him in truth using the scriptures. These are the worshipers that the Father wants. John 4. And this is what we want to do. Look at another text. And this one certainly uh, appeals to us in terms of worship found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And this speaks about worship. We pick it up in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What is that? Worship. Enter into the holy place. Where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is. Remember at the temple when Jesus died on the cross. That when he died the veil that separated the outer temple from the Holy of Holies was rent from top to bottom. You know why it was top to bottom? Because it could never have been done by somebody on the bottom. Nobody down there could have been pulling it up. It came from the finger of God top down wasn't a trick. It was the hand of God. And so the temple veil was rent, indicating that you and I now have access to the very holy of holies because of the sacrifice of Christ. This is what the writer is saying. We have confidence to enter the holy place because of the shed blood of Jesus. And we do. That's what we do when we worship. We enter the holy place of God by that new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What a great text. We draw near to the throne of grace. We draw near to the place of God. And I believe with all of my heart that it is predominantly, especially in this way that we call worship. When the church gathers together to worship the living God, there is a special sense of the place of God in our midst. And that's where we, in this peculiar way, draw near to Him in worship. 
And he says in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And notice here, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't forsake the assembling of the believers. Don't forsake going to church. Don't forsake worship. Don't skip it. Don't try to get your way out of it. And yet, as I said, for many, they look for excuses to not go to church. How can I stay home today? Let's see. Oh, one of the kids is sick. Let's all stay home. There was a, an old, it wasn't a hymn, but it was some kind of a song in one of the churches that I pastored that the, uh, they did in kind of a skit. And the song went something like this, that one of the child sneezed, so the whole family's got to stay home to blow his nose. I understand if one of your kids is sick, but at least one of you can get here. I mean, that's, that's I want to go to worship. I want to be where God is. Don't forsake the assembling of the believers. You remember that opening illustration that I gave? When you love Jesus, when you love God, you will want to assemble with the believers. You will want to go to that holy place where Christ is in the midst of his people. You will want to go there. It would be totally unnatural For a husband and a wife to stay away from one another as they say, Oh, I love love her. I, I love him. And just stay away and only go once a year. It would be as unnatural for that as it would be for a Christian to say, Well, I love Jesus. I've been saved. But, uh, you know, I don't go to church anywhere. I, I haven't found a church that I like. And, you know, most churches are a bunch of hypocrites there anyway. And That would be totally unnatural. And rather than being evidence of being saved, such action would be evidence of being lost. If you say you love Jesus and have been saved by Jesus and don't go to church, it's not evidence that you're saved. It's evidence that you're not saved. And you need to examine your heart. If you love him, you will worship him, not avoid him. Another text I ask you to look at right over the page or two, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Here, just verse 15, and I'm only going to comment and read it. Just say, verse 15, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. What a great text. But I want you to notice, yes, indeed, we are to offer up continually the sacrifice of praise. And that means it isn't exclusively in church. Although I do believe that this is the place where God especially meets with his people and in a supernatural way meets with his people, every day we are to be offering up continually our praise to God. God, our praise 
and our worship. Go to Him every day, all the way. Now, as I said last week, this is not meant to be an exhaustive study on worship. One day I do hope to do a series on worship, perhaps even as soon as next year. But it is my contention that those who are truly saved will have a heart and a desire to worship God as evidence of their salvation. Evidence of their salvation, evidence that they have been forgiven, which is our study, which is the title of our whole message or series. Evidence of forgiveness, you will want to worship Jesus. You will want to go where his people are and praise him and worship him with his people in a Bible-based, Bible-governed church. That's what God's people will want to do. Therefore, it is also my contention that one who says that he or she is saved and loves Jesus but does not worship him is inconsistent with the scriptures and is in danger of being lost if not being lost. And I close with this text in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, if you would turn with me for a moment, look down to verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that this is the last hour. Let me just ask you this. Do you think an Antichrist would be saved? I don't think so. Look at the next verse. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. When you go out from church, when you do not go to church, it is evidence that you are not of Christ. And so I say to you today, examine your heart. I pray that you will take this to heart. Because it's serious. We joke about people who can't wait to get out of church. We joke about people who make excuses to not go to church. But the fact of the matter, it's serious. If you don't like going to church and worshiping Jesus, there's one of two things going on. Number one, it's a bad church. Or number two, you've got a bad heart. Go to a good church. A Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-governed church. And worship Jesus. If you don't want to do that, examine your heart. You may not be in the faith. I encourage every one of you here today, don't absent yourself from the body. And if you ever feel tempted to do so, remember your preacher today. It's an evidence of a bad thing. And cry out to God for help and mercy so that you won't be tempted to become one of those who just thinks it's easy to not go to church. Don't let your families keep you. Don't let your friends keep you. Don't let anyone keep you from worshiping Jesus. Because that's what a Christian will want to do. Let's pray.